inviting, inclusive. Welcome to Brookside Community Church. Thank you, um, Pat. Our uh, second scripture this morning is from Matthew, verses uh, chapter 13, verses 44 through 52. And uh, if you didn't know, we've been reading through Matthew together because that's what the liturgical calendar has us doing. And I've just tried to be intentional to try to remind us every time to read it in context so we see it as a part of the larger story. So uh, this morning, I want to ask you, before I actually read the passage, I want to preempt you to kind of pay attention to some things. Not only are we in this section where Jesus is teaching his parables, uh, this is the third major block of Jesus' teachings. So Matthew is the teachings, action, teachings, action. And so this is a, a teaching section. Um, and so he's going through these lists of parables, and this one today has some particular questions I think we should ask. So I'm going to ask you to turn to your neighbor, and I have two questions for you. The first question is, can you think of three, maybe five, things that matter the most in your life? What are three or five things that matter the utmost in your life? Things that matter the most. And the second question is, can you make a list or can you think about what a list might look like of the things that matter most to God? So the first one is three to five things that matter the most to you. And if you were to start putting a list together of the things that matter most to God, what would it look like? Go. You got just a minute. Turn to your neighbor. You want to take your uh, answers and then share them with everybody else? Does anybody have any uh, interesting answers you'd like to share with the rest of us? Um, so the questions are, if you were making a list for yourself, what would it be? If you were making a list for God, what would it start to look like? So any, uh, any interesting answers or answers you would like to share? Yeah, Sarah. I, I think we d differ on what it means to be interesting, but yeah, right. So for God, she says integrity, okay? Anybody else? Uh, okay, so things you would like to share. What are some things that anybody could share with the, re the rest of us? Things that matter most to you. Yeah, Nancy. Love of family and friends. Love of family and friends. Peace, okay? Health care. okay? Work. Work, work, yeah. Work, yeah. Yeah, Martin. Yes. I want God to give me a heart to love my neighbors. Mm. A heart to love your neighbors. Yeah. Yeah, Gina. The natural world and the creation. Creation, the natural world. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, so um, think about this as we, uh, um, as we go through here looking at this uh, parable that Jesus is going to teach us. This is from Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 52. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When someone found and hid it, then it, um, sorry, someone found and hid. And then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, she went and sold all that she had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net 
that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. And when it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into a basket, but threw, the, threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all of this? They answered, Yes. And he said to them, Well, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a household who brings out his treasures, what is new and what is old. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The real human question, I think, for us to ask is whether there is anything that we care enough about that we would be willing to risk everything else even our very lives, in order to protect it. Do something. That was his wife's plea. Now you need to do something. Okay, so I know that you uh, didn't see Moana. I'm still trying to figure out what kind of movies that the folks in this community uh, watch. But like I said, I'm spending the summer doing my sermon prep time by watching movies. So maybe you didn't see Moana, and I didn't pick another Disney film this time. But maybe you did see the 2002 movie. John Quincy and his wife, Denise, were watching their son, Michael, at a baseball game when he collapsed and had to be taken to the hospital. And after a series of tests, it was discovered that Michael had an enlarged heart and would die without a transplant. John turns to his insurance provider saying, but I have insurance. And it turns out that what Michael needs is a procedure that his employer decided not to include in their coverage. So the hospital administrators, they have required a sizable amount of cash up front in order to put Michael on the transplant list. So John Q then panics and promptly converts all of their family's assets into cash but it's not enough. And when his wife says, do something, then John decides he has nothing left to do. So he will do everything and anything for his kid. And so he takes the emergency room hostage as a ransom in exchange for the hospital as administration's willingness to do a transplant. Now this story, by the way, the name of the movie is John Q. It has a number of important ethical questions that I think we could spend all day talking about. Watching a movie like this would be, I think, a great practice for us as a church to try to figure out how you take important questions, important life situations, and dissect them and figure out what our values are and how to make sense of the things that matter most to us. Not least of which in this one, I think, especially for those of us who spend a significant amount of time in the hospital, is what we make of John Q's methods. When it comes to the ethics of healthcare, unfortunately, we don't have the time, nor do I think we have the patience or the resources here on Sunday morning to get into the debate. But here are some questions I think the movie raises. Do we have a collective responsibility for the care and well-being of society's children? Who gets to decide what health care resources are allocated to whom? What, if any, role should our government play? 
Is violence ever justified, even in dire circumstances like when the life or well-being of a child is at stake? Well, this passage today is about the kingdom. And so I'm asking these questions not about health care, but really about what we value. In Matthew 13, we have been given a list by Jesus of seven parables telling us what the reign of heaven is like. None of them, I said last week, none of them call us to look up or ahead. Rather, they call us to look down. Parables, again, are sayings that allow us to compare two things, like placing them side by side. That's what the word parable means. Our passage today contains three of those seven parables from Matthew 13, telling us the kingdom of heaven can be compared to so we have stories of farmers and wheat and mustard seeds and yeast and a pearl and a fishing net and even hidden treasure. What have we learned so far? Well, we have heard that the reign of heaven calls us to put our hands to work to help get the ground prepared so that the love of God can burst forth fruit. We've heard that the reign of heaven requires patience and care, not quick fixes. We've been challenged to train our eyes not to just look at the problems, but to look for promises. Promises that are embedded in the world around us. We've been told repeatedly that the reign of heaven is small, even hidden, but it's always at work. And if we are patient enough and willing to work with it enough, we might see it grow into something amazing and life-giving. One thing I've challenged us to take note of is that in all of these teachings, as I said, Jesus spoke about heaven and never once said to look up, never once said, wait until I die to see it. Instead, he said, each time, look down at the earth and see what you can learn. In this week's text, the fifth and sixth of those in the parables list, we hear heaven is like a treasure or like a pearl of great price. And again, we see the kingdom of heaven is hidden and small. Nevertheless, to the example characters in our parable stories, these things are of such great importance that it causes their behavior to be what probably most of us would likely label as obsessive, compulsive, radical. They are moved to do some enormously risky costly things. The reign of heaven is like a discovery that disrupts all of our priorities. And those who make these discoveries have their entire lives shaped by them. What do you imagine that the surrounding communities watching these folks would have said about their radical action? Wow, they might say, with gawks and stares. Has he really lost his mind? Why would he pay such an amazing price for such a worthless field. He's going to find himself homeless. Can't you hear? Can you hear the people at the post office saying that? Wow, they might mock, tease, and taunt. That old merchant has finally fell off her rocker now. What does she think that single pearl is going to do to keep her business open? It's as if there's this deep, undeniable, eternally driving force that speaks out and says to these people, you've got to do something. It's undeniable. When you think about it, who do the main characters here in this parable represent? 
Does the man who purchased the field or the merchant, do they refer to people who are willing to devote themselves, their whole selves, wholeheartedly to the kingdom, to God's plan maybe? I'm sure that's probably how it would be interpreted for most folks today. But I think, I think it's always a bad practice, always a bad practice, I think, to identify ourselves in the passage with noble people, people that we think the passage is praising in Jesus' teachings. I think it's a bad practice for us to look at the passages and see who noble people are and say, ah, I think I fit there. That's who I think I am. I think rather sometimes it should be better for us to see who the adversaries are in the passage and see if we identify ourselves with them as the adversaries or the competitors or the outside onlookers who are looking at the situation, seeing how we would respond. Maybe we would be more apt to call the kingdom people like Jesus obsessive or radical or thoughtless or careless or silly or maybe falling off the rocker. On the other hand, there's another way to read this passage. Is it possible that the characters in this parable actually represent God? A prodigal God. We are, remember, supposed to be saying something in these passages about the nature and character of God, I think. If Jesus is teaching, we're learning something about God. God's voice, as we have already heard in Matthew, is that voice that speaks over the waters of baptism that say, this is my beloved. God, as Jesus has told us in his teachings and actions, is the one who draws the hurting, the sick, the weary, the burdened, the supposedly worthless, and says to them, come, Come to me. I'll give you rest and restoration. If Jesus' ministry tells us anything about God, it's that God sees what the world says is worthless and calls it beloved, calls it blessed. It's as if God finds those things that the world often discards and treats as worthless and says, look here at this immense value, this sacred value that you're discarding here. Well, I think it's a healthy thing for us regularly to take inventory of the things that matter most to us. The real question, the one that might provide us with the best insight, I think, into what Jesus is teaching here is this. What are the things that matter not just to us, but God? What are the things that matter the most to God? One way, I think, to really get at this question is actually to pose it in the negative. Are there things that God cares so little about that God is willing to do nothing or just sit back and watch as it's destroyed? There's a contrarian farmer in Kentucky by the name, many of you know this, uh, that he's been a big inspiration to me. His name was Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry, the contrarian farmer, has a lot of important things to say about faith and God and creation. But he doesn't always have the best things to say about institutionalized religion. Barry, uh, his version of faith, I think is better characterized as what he said, what he called secular pilgrimage. Barry calls his faith a secular pilgrimage. He says it's a religious state of mind because it involves, here's a quote, an implicit and essential humility, a reluctance to impose on things as they are, a willingness to relate to the world as a student, as an observer, as a servant, a wish to be included in the natural order rather than to conquer nature, 
a wish to discover the natural form rather than to create new forms that would be exclusively human, a presence of mystery or divinity in the world, attitudes of wonder or awe or humility before the works of creation. Barry, see, he explains that he begins with the assumption that the greatest disaster in human history is one that has happened within or to religion. That is, there became this con conceptual division between the holy and the world, working to excerpt the Creator from creation. His criticism for traditional Christianity is scathing. Barry says, The contempt for the world or hatred of it, which is exemplified both by the wish to exploit it for the sake of cash and by the willingness to despise it for the sake of salvation, has reached a terrifying climax in our own time. The rift between the soul and the body, between creator and creation, has admitted in an entrance into the world of the world's doom. That's what Wendell Berry says. For me, I think Wendell Berry asked the most poignant question of all. Do we really hate the world that we live in? It's a heavy question. For me, my question for us today is this. Does God care about creation? Or maybe God cares so little about creation that God is willing to set back and watch it as it's being destroyed. I think, however, that the passage that we read calls us to look at God maybe like John Q. That this beloved thing that God has made is so important to God that God is willing to go to extreme circumstances to do outrageous things things that we would probably even say are obsessive or radical or crazy i think that the passage today tells us something about maybe even one of the most precious well-known memory verses of all john 3:16 what does it say for god so loved the world that god would be willing to do anything and everything to see it cared for for those of us that follow Jesus, see, I think escapism or apathy or antipathy are not options for us. If we're to follow Jesus, then I think we're called to see the sacred things in the world that have been discarded and desecrated and to be moved by the heart of God, to hear the voice of God saying to us, do something. Well, this morning, I hope that you leave with this burning question in the pit of your gut that says, what kind of reign of heaven is it that we imagine? Well, for me, I imagine of God not who is apathetic, but a God whose love for the world is, has such immeasurable worth that God is willing to do anything, that the worth of creation and its rescue is of unrivaled importance. I believe God wants us to have such a deep and abiding love for the world that our entire lives are shaped by it. As if we looked out at the world and said, Ah, I see. And we would be willing to give everything in order to buy it, even if the world around us says, What's wrong with that person? Can we respond to God's love for the world by being willing to do new, risky, even costly things? Can we here this morning 
the voice of God, perhaps, calling us to say, hey, are you going to do something? Amen. So we um, respond this morning. I just want to ask us, sometimes we might hear God say, do something, but it's important not to just act irrationally. And I think even John Q. in my example story here, it's a cliche, right, of this person who just gives everything in order for something else that they love. But I think it's important for us to really get together and spend some time together and say, what is it that God asks us to love so much? And if we're going to do something, what is it? So that's what I'm asking you to do. Stand up and let's sing together. Rejoice, give thanks, and sing. Hymn number 303.